Warning. Some content discussed in this podcast can be triggering to survivors of sexual assault and difficult to hear. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Redemption Podcast with your hosts, Stacy and Julia. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 4 of the Redemption Podcast. I'm your host, Julia, and today we're joined by my co-host, Stacy, Mary Havens, survivor and author of the book, The Shadows in My Heart, and her sister, Sharon. One of 12 children, Mary grew up on a picturesque Wisconsin dairy farm. Holidays, graduations, marriages, and newborns filled the farmhouse with light, laughter, and hugs. But for Mary, the unspoken eclipsed that light. Unresolved grief abuse, religious dogma, and secrets left her in the shadows, lost and alone. Her profound story is one of determination, survival, and her ability to rise above the fray. Mary has made multiple TV appearances on shows such as The Oprah Winfrey Show and The Mary Hansen Show. Mary and Sharon, welcome to Redemption. Thank you. Welcome, guys. Yes, and good morning to everyone. Good morning. Good morning. So, Today we're going to be talking about the different chapters and events that Mary and Sharon have experienced in their lives that many of our listeners can relate to and glean some hope and inspiration from their willingness to talk about the things that we tend to leave in the shadows. Mm -hmm. We're going to be talking about family dynamics, grief and loss, sexual abuse, relationships, and the perspective that you both have on your life experiences today. Uh, But first, I would like to ask Mary, why did you choose to write the book? So it took me a number of years to really get serious about writing the book, but it was while my mom was dying that I had this vision, and at the end of the vision, she handed me a key. Obviously, it wasn't a real key, but she told me to go and write my story to tell the truth. And she had not disclosed her own truth to me, until right before she died, that she knew my ex-husband had done the things that, um, the sexual abuse, and she just couldn't face it. She just put her hands towards her head and said, I just couldn't make that go into my head. So about five years after she passed away, I had the recording for uh, the meeting I had with her when she made that statement, and I finally listened to it. I cried Mm -hmm. for miles and miles because I had it on in my car. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of the beginning of making that decision to write the book. But that would have been like 2008. And it wasn't until 2012 that I left the state of Minnesota, told my kids, I'll tell you where I'm at when I get there. And I knew where I was going. I was going to St. George, Utah. And that's where I started writing the story, but it wasn't until 2017, or no, 2016, I think it was, that I met Lynn Weezy Sneed, and I hired her as my ghostwriter, and she helped to bring the story together. Mm. Mm. So beautifully written. I literally could not put the book down. Thank so big you. kudos to her. Yes, yes, she's an amazing woman, which all my sisters have met her and other family members, so yes. And she's from Wisconsin, which is where we're from, so she even loved it more to be able to work with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like in writing the book, this was part of you finally giving, your mother giving you that key, you giving yourself permission to finally start working through a lot of unresolved stuff 
Yes. Yes. In your life and begin that healing process. The healing process will go on till the day I die because there's so much in my lifetime that has happened. And over these last few weeks, I've, you know, thought about and looked at and tried to understand how I can resolve that. And only I can resolve that. And that is through the grieving process, which I never knew how to grieve or have permission to grieve. Mm. And that was the thing back in the day. Adults thought kids didn't have feelings, kids didn't have memories. And for me, the memories were always there, which sometimes people block them out. But mine were always there. I always wanted to tell people and couldn't because there was no resources, there was no place to go. And even if I did, I was met with blank stares. Mm-hmm. And so living through the pain, which I did not think I would. I thought, oh, I've done this, I've been through it. But it was a journey of pain in writing. Mm-hmm. And I was also very, very angry. I was angry at my mom for you know letting me go through all of this, not protecting me, not protecting my siblings. And through it all, though, I began to read her story through her letters and her diary, and then knowing that I'm one of the oldest and experiencing all four of my siblings' deaths. Right. What could that have been like for my mom and mm-hmm. my dad? So, mm-hmm. yeah, you lost four siblings growing up, and and you were the oldest girl of 12. I mean, how did, you know, we all, you know, when, when we have loved ones that pass, pass away we all deal with the grief and you know the the immediate impact differently you know there's nothing that can prepare you right. for how to handle it you know and and with your the, your loved ones around you so how did your parents response to losing the children affect your ability to grieve as a child and wish what do you wish that your parents could have done differently to be more supportive. You know, I thought about that. And um, so actually last night I didn't sleep. but I, kept, I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> I kept seeing my mom's face. And honestly, it was my mom's face losing that baby. And years later finding out that she was not able to hold him after he was born because the laws were such that you didn't touch a dead child. And Mm. so she grieved that loss, and I could always see Mm. her face so sad. And I know now that she transferred a lot of her sadness and hurt to me. And I was, what, three, almost four years old when Johnny died, and he was three months old. Mm. Then five months later, her dad died. And so I look at that now and look at the story of her life and... I wish that my parents could have recognized that kids do feel and kids do remember. For me, hanging on to that, it isn't just that. It's everything that was traumatic in my life was like a volcano building up until one day it exploded. And then the anger. And the anger started before my mom died. Um, I was very angry and disgusted with my husband at the time mm-hmm. and so if if I could go back and just talk to my parents because they were grieving too they lost a son 
and that was hard on them. But they didn't know how either, so they did the best they could. Yeah. But mm-hmm. that was sort of the the beginning. Yes. Right? Is yes. losing your siblings. And were you, I mean, so Sharon is 17 years younger than you. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so what was your experience like with grief and loss of your siblings or that awareness or how, you know, what did that look like for you? For me, it was known that I had um, siblings that passed away, but I didn't know what that actually meant. I don't think my dad ever really talked about it at all, but my mom did. So I didn't have the the actual traumatic experience of having went through it, but I think who they became was a part of my growing up then. And so feelings and emotions weren't really expressed a whole lot. You knew you were loved, but You weren't told you were loved, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. So I think that because of the loss that they had endured over that time, it was just a part of who they were by the time I showed up into the family. So I think those are the results of what I experienced, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that's that's all you, you know, that was normal. Mm -hmm. That's what you knew. Right. Yeah. So... uh, what wisdom could you share with someone? There's so many different stages of the grieving process, right? There's when it first happens. You're in that twilight zone. Time stops, and then life kind of goes on. And, you know, depending on how your your family and your friends around you handle the loss of somebody, you guys can either become closer or you can become silent and spread apart. And there's different things that we can do to handle grief I think healthier and and also leads lead us lead ourselves down. We can get lost down rabbit holes yeah. as well. So, do you have any advice for like health? You know, a healthy grieving process. I think I think we uh, have to teach. You know, our children, especially if we're married and have children, or we can teach others about loss because loss is inevitable. Every day, something changes. And it and it uh, you lose something, and grief is really the process of healing, and when you can talk about it, I definitely needed to talk about it. I needed to know that somebody heard me. I needed validation. So definitely, today I think we have a lot of resources and help whenever there's traumatic events. Um, but speak up. I mean, whatever happens to you, mm-hmm. and know that somebody has your back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Surround yourself with people who love you and support you and want the best for you, right? Yes. Stay close to your family if you can. Right. And talk about whatever that thing is that you're grieving, whether it's a loved one or a, a significant event in your life, don't be afraid to talk about it. Yeah. Even if it's hard. And make sure your, your child has that opportunity to voice what they're going through too. Yeah. Because otherwise we're just going to keep walking around with it. Yes. So, and stay away from drugs and alcohol. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. That doesn't no. solve your problems either. <laughs> Not an answer. Not an answer. I think um, one of the things, if I can step in, yeah. um, for the sisters, especially, I think as Mary went through this and had all these emotions, as a person who watches someone go through that and to be able to stand by them and to allow them to express 
those feelings and to be able to take it in, but not to take it on mm. for them. Yeah, that's important. Was, yeah. was a, a big thing for us. And I think it was helpful that there were so many of us because I felt like Mary could go to each one of us at different times and then we could get together and be able to support her as she was going through this process, yeah. but not each shoulder it ourselves as well. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that was helpful. Absolutely. You know, my sisters have every right to disown me completely. I was totally out of control, insane at times, uh, even before the incest came out. Um, mm-hmm. I had gone through a, a ovariectomy and... That's where all my treasure trove of emotions was, and now it was ripped out of me. And so the brain does funny things, and the things started surfacing really hellaciously. And my sisters and my brothers and my family have every right to disown me because I had such (laughs) bad behavior, and I'm thankful for each and every one of them that they stood by me. So I got the validation partially from what I needed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was fully that that permission from mom yes. that you that you fully needed. Yes. And yes. that key vision I think is just absolutely beautiful. Well, speaking of those hard things to talk about, a big part of your story is uh, you opening up about your experience as a child being molested in the barn the barn. Yeah, yes. by one of the ranch hands and your inability to, you, you didn't feel like you could go to your mom to tell her what happened. And, and I think as women, we all, we don't go through this life unscathed. So Sharon, you have mm-hmm. your experience mm-hmm. um, as a kid telling Mary, who is 17 years older, married to your now ex-husband at the time, and her telling you that your husband touched her inappropriately. And then, and then the whole going into, you get this sort of, and th- these are all things that you share in the book, um, just so that the audience knows. And then, you know, you have this sneaking suspicion that Stan is probably doing it to your kids also. But, you know, you have that feeling in your gut, but you can't prove it for a long time until uh, your daughter finally tells you. So what was the story that you told yourself as a kid when that first happened to you in the barn and you didn't feel like you could go to your mom to tell somebody? It's a very strange thing, and I can't really put a finger on it. It's the intuition of shame. I knew it was wrong. I knew it felt dirty, but I didn't really know where to go with it. You know, unlike Sharon, who who came and told me, I didn't have that validation or the feeling like I could tell. And it was also um, my sister Bonnie was very ill. I was five, so she would have been four. My older brother, David, um, they each had cystic fibrosis, and so they were very sick. And it was always my mom's look on her face, her sadness. I feel like she was just sad almost my entire life. And it was her pain, so I think that was just how I operated. I wore a mask. might have thought I was real happy, but that was the age I can really look at and say, yeah, Mm -hmm. I became silent. 
Yeah. And then those things just start to build. Yes. And then Sharon, when you were a little kid, you didn't know any better but to tell. I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But what was the response from your family when Sharon? Well, I feel like I did all the right things because I had been reading Psychology Today, which is something Stan just hated that I was reading this magazine. He would throw it in the garbage. And so I had learned uh, from that and Sigmund Freud, I, I read his books. And so I knew what to do. And so I immediately took her to the doctor and had her examined, and the doctor said there was no evidence. But he said, children do not make these stories up. And then Mm -hmm. he directed me to go to social services, and then I took her home and told my parents, and I don't believe you were there. You weren't in the room when when I told mom and dad, right? I honestly don't remember that yeah. part. I, I can just see me sitting in a rocking chair and my mom and dad sitting across from me and telling them, and they had this sort of shocked look on their face and kind of weakly said, well, I don't believe he would do that. Mm-hmm. That's calling me a liar. Mm-hmm. Right. Not that they wanted to. And then I told them about being molested by the farmhand, and that was another shock for them. And then I told them about the vision I had when Johnny died. I had never told anyone that story of what I had seen uh, of, of the back of the Catholic Church in what they call the vestibule and the little, I called it a bassinet. Everything was white. This baby was laying in there, and I... I said, is that what happened? Because I was three years old, and they were shocked that I would have any memory of that. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, that's a big sign for people. Understand that your little children, whatever question they ask, answer it appropriately. Mm -hmm. And so I, I went back, I called social services, set up an appointment to go in and see them, and then my mom called and said, oh, no, Sharon said that didn't happen that she was playing doctor and nurse with the neighbor kids. And so there I was. All this story wasn't believed. So that's a hard thing. Yeah, that's so defeating. And then Sh- Sharon, how how did you feel? Like did you do you remember any of that as a child? Or how did you come to terms with that sort of being kind of blown over afterwards? I think well, there was other things that happened, and I ended up, for some reason, that summer, I wasn't allowed to go places or whatever because I lied. I, I do remember that, but I don't remember how all that came about. So that happened, and I think I just then didn't know if I could even believe myself because what I believed happened, I was told, didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And it was, I don't know how old I was, when it was actually a sister-in-law who had heard about the story years later, who had asked me point blank if that happened. And I asked, or I told her, yes, it had, because apparently it had been talk in the family. And then it was kind of like at that point, someone finally believed me. But I think I grew up not believing in myself or believing 
what I thought I knew because of that first experience. And is that something that you kind of held on to or just sort of try to block away? I'm sure I held on to it until adulthood. And then until, like, we never really talked about it until Mary came to me later in life. And Mm -hmm. then Mm -hmm. that's when I knew that it was true when Mm -hmm. she and I could confirm it together. And I don't know if I ever really thought about it much, like, as a child growing up up to that point. And then years down the road, your daughter, one of your daughters, finally tells you what happened to her with your husband, her father. So you start going through the legal process and and all of that. And then you start going to therapy. So just so that the audience knows, so your ex-husband Stan molested both of your children. And it was something that you had a sneaking suspicion of yes. for a long time. Yeah, just to back up a little bit, two weeks after Sharon came and told me, and I told my parents and his parents were sitting right there. Mm-hmm. And then two weeks after that incident, our daughter said, Daddy tickled my butt. I was pregnant, just pregnant with my third child, and and he just, like, disappeared. So all these things, you get to question your your thought processes. So I always believed Sharon, but like she said, we didn't talk about it. Nobody uh-huh. talked about it. And I never told anybody about being molested until I met, or I didn't meet Stan, we were in school together, and his little brother drowned. And that's the first time I told him. And I feel like that was like giving him permission, mm-hmm. you know, so. Um, oh, yeah, it was uh, fuel. Yeah, for- yeah, yeah. And in looking back, I mean, I there's so many things I look back at now and see he was a child molester before I met him. He was molesting his sisters and whoever. So in 1984, I had been in therapy after I had my ovaries removed. Um, I had been in therapy and um, I can remember driving in St. Paul. There's a place called Spaghetti Junction and I'd be like really driving through that place way (laughs) too fast. But I was so angry because I kept saying, I know he did it. I know he did it. And that was the day I called Sharon and said, I need to ask you a question and I need you to be honest with me. And then she told me, yes, that had happened. There's so much you have to go through. I mean, you get the truth and then, you know, it it fuels the fire too. Mm -hmm. And so I had to figure out a way to ask my daughters. So that very day, um, Shannon came home from school (laughs) and I asked her and she's like, no, no, nothing happened to me. And then I'm like, okay, I know it did. And now I got to ask Chantel. And so it took me a few days to kind of figure out how I was going to ask her. I picked her up from work and I questioned her a little bit. And I said, has anyone ever touched you in a way that didn't feel right? Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, mom, I don't want to hurt your feelings. And I'm like, I need to know the truth. And she said, yes. And I said, who was it? She said, I don't want to tell you. And I said, well, was it an uncle? Was it me? Did I do something that was wrong? And she's like, no. 
I said, well, who was it? And she said, dad. And then it was like an explosion, like a bomb went off, and I had to report it because I was seeing a therapist. We were talking about it, and we had started family therapy, and it was just so crazy. And they were like, oh, we can't continue because nobody's being, you know, we're not making any progress. And I think everybody kind of panicked because they were looking for a way to deal with this. And that was 1984. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and Stan, you know, you've had this sort of relationship with Stan since you got with him where there are all of these red flags, all of these things that just don't seem quite right, and then all of this comes out. When we get into these relationships, it's like you don't really see people's true colors until they show you. Yes. So how do you know if you are dating a, a dangerous person? I think, if for one thing, there's the control issue. Mm-hmm. If they want to control what you're doing, where you're going, mm-hmm. what you're wearing, lies. He was such a liar that he would lie even when the truth didn't matter. I mean, it was like the sky is blue. No, it's gray. I mean, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, possessiveness, jealousy. He was always accusing me of being with other people, other men, mm-hmm. when in fact he was the one that was doing it. So the finger pointing, those are things that for sure need to look at. Mm-hmm. And and when you're dating somebody that's a dangerous person like that, it's hard to get away from them. Yes. If you can recognize those things in the beginning, it'll be easier to get out. But once they have your mind trapped, it's like Sharon said, she didn't know if she could even believe herself. Right. And that was the thing that um, <clears throat> you, you began to question yourself. Yeah. So what is the wisdom in that? Trust yourself. Yes. Tell a safe person. Trust your gut. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Find a safe way out. Mm-hmm. And we will list resources at the end of this episode for different for uh, individuals who are survivors of human trafficking, domestic violence, other other resources that people can go to as well. So so you and en- you did end up going through the legal process. Yes. And you went to a family? Incest family. Therapy? Yeah, mm-hmm. it was called Incest Family Treatment Program. Okay. Yes. Yes. And then and then you wrote a letter to Oprah uh, <laughs> wanting to um, talk about, you know, the families who have gone through that experience. And then you were asked to be on the show. And you were on the show multiple times with your family Yes. Sharing your your family's experience going through the legal system and therapy after finding out that your husband had indeed been molesting your daughters for years. At that point in time, you still chose to stay as a family and stay with him after all that he put you and your daughters through. And Oprah left a cliffhanger (laughs) at the end of the episode that in the next episode, the audience would find out why you chose to stay with Stan but you never went back on the air again to answer that question. And so with all the time that has passed since Oprah and then since eventually divorcing Stan and since the book has released, now do you know why you stayed? Yes. It honestly took me 20 years almost to the day of being on the Oprah show. I was driving down the Montana Highway, and I went, oh, my God. 
I thought I had to protect everybody from him. So I stayed there trying to protect my kids. And at that point, I had grandkids. And I realized today there's no way that I could protect them from him um, because someone like him will abuse if they get the chance. The best thing you can do is tell your kids to always come to you and tell you if somebody has touched you inappropriately or if you feel uncomfortable with someone around you. It's like when the kids were little, if they didn't want to hug me or kiss me goodbye, that's okay. Whatever reason they feel uncomfortable, don't force kids to do that. Uh, so that was that's a big learning experience. And I was always glad every time this little thing about Oprah would pop up, I'd be like, oh, my God, I don't know why I don't have a good answer. I didn't know really why I stayed. But there was the caveat of my, <clears throat> my girls when I saw them going through the court system. Um, they didn't want to be the ones that sent him to prison. I wanted him to go to prison. In fact, I just wanted to kill him mm -hmm. because... I was in so much pain, and he was the cause of it, and I couldn't get away from him. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I questioned, too, was one day um, I just, like, had this fleeting moment that the knife was handy and I could stab him. And I lived with a lot of shame that I had that thought in my head. How could I think it even? And this is after the therapy and stuff. And then I expressed that to a couple other people, and they said, yep, had the same feeling. Mm. And I said, I wonder why you'd want to kill someone with a knife. And you watch enough of the law and order and all that stuff, you learn that it's a very, very personal thing. A gun yeah. won't do it. It's too far away. Yeah. And so, um, and I still, I mean, I, I think it's okay to talk about that because I had that thought. I didn't act on it. Um, he had a heart attack. And I could have not called 911, but I did. And I've expressed that to someone else, and they said the same thing. They had that opportunity to just not call for help for that abuser. And so I think it's, it's okay to s tell people that mm -hmm. I had those thoughts, other people have had those thoughts. You need to tell someone. It's important that you express those feelings and thoughts. Yeah. I think that's the theme of this whole episode is – not letting things stay silent mm -hmm. and yeah. not letting things, um, you know, when we do that, we stay in that shame. Yes. And, and you know, in that stigma of mm -hmm. things. And only when we start to open up do we really begin our healing process. Yes. So. Oh, that's so beautiful. That hits hard. That's good. <sighs> yeah. Well, and, and so your healing process, so you eventually did divorce, Stan. Yes. And then um, I, I don't know how long after you... Uh, your parents began to start passing away, and then your mom passed away. And that's kind of where I feel like the journey <laughs> began, you know. And you wrote the book. And so, you know, and, and it's, a, it's a winding and never-ending spaghetti yeah. junction, junction. <laughs> road, right? Yes. So what is your relationship with your sisters and your family like Well, I today? feel like... My relationship with my sisters is very beautiful. I'm very thankful. Mm -hmm. I still feel a lot of shame for what happened to them because it, 
even though I was not the one that did it, I felt responsible for what he did to them. And, um, but I feel like we have grown together. Um, once the incest came out, our family actually started coming together because we were like little shadows running around in a house full of people, but not ever connecting. And I had divorced him once, <laughs> and then the kids convinced me to let him come back, and he played that narcissistic game of being the nice guy and all of that. And it was, Mom died in 2003, and I divorced him for the last time in 2004, and then I came to Alaska. Right, you followed Sharon. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and how has Alaska sort of been, it's the setting for your healing process. It is. Yes. So it, it, I, I just love Alaska. Yes. Yeah. I always say Alaska restores my soul. And Sharon just bought me a little plaque that says, Alaska, Alaska is calling, I must go. I'm putting that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I found that up in Telkeet now. <laughs> yeah. I was like, that's for Mary. Yeah. And your sister Charlotte tells me that you guys are about to go on a road trip back to Minnesota. Yes. Oh, wow. It's going to be an adventure. <laughs> yeah. And it's beautiful. It's fall time. Yes. You know, it's another season changing. Right. Yes. So just to kind of start wrapping up, you know, what gifts and permissions do we need to give ourselves, our audience, myself included, what gifts and permissions do we need to give ourselves to start forgiving the past in order to heal and start writing our futures? Well, I think you hit the right word, writing. Just write, write all your emotions, express them on paper, express them on your computer. Talk with people about it. We have the resources, we have organizations that are willing to help us to help revisit and let go. We have to mm. embrace and let go of the past because we can only live for today. And to be trapped like I have been for the years and years and years of things that I didn't do, but I felt the guilt and shame for. And so I think it's very important that we pass this on to everyone we know. doesn't matter if it's a child all the way on up to adults. One of the things that I learned in my journey of telling my story, when I have told older people, and I mean 70 and older, they will tell me for the first time what happened to them. And I found that fascinating in the beginning because I'm like, why? And someone said, everyone wants their story told right. before they die. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Including your mom. <clears throat> yeah. Yep. Yep. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my final question for both uh, Mary and Sharon is a question that we ask all of our guests on the show. The word redemption means different things to different people. So what does it mean for you? I think we are not what has happened to us. So for me, a belief in God and of Jesus as my Savior, I need to find my identity in them. And so if we can find our true identity we can let go of what has happened to us. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let go of that story and that false self. Yes. Mm -hmm. That thing that we've been 
told we are. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, if we can release that and acknowledge it, I think it is important, as Mary says, you know, in whatever format you can acknowledge that it did happen and accept that it did happen, but to know that you don't have to stay there and we are not who or what that presented to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like the, the term, um, uh, and this is just a different uh, a reference to something else, but, you know, like self, like forgiveness of self mm-hmm. for the things that we didn't know, the mistakes that we made, all these things. Yes. You know, you made a mistake or this thing happened to you, but you are not a mistake. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how about for you, Mary? Well, I call it redeeming grace. And I believe that God has long since forgiven me. Mm-hmm. I am mm-hmm. still working on me forgiving me. So mm-hmm. I, too, um, share with Sharon that that God is an important part of my life. And for quite some time, I was very angry at God. But I look at it now and go, yeah, God has forgiven you. It's time for you to forgive yourself and give it up and let it go. So that's what mm-hmm. I'm working on. <laughs> it's beautiful. Absolutely. And it's a beautiful season for it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mary and Sharon and Charlotte, who's been <laughs> hanging out and um, hanging yes. out with us in the studio. And Thank you, guys. Thank, thank you, you for choosing My House and the Redemption Podcast as a platform to share your story and, and continue on your, your healing journey. Well, thank it's you for allowing, allowing me to come and my sisters to be here. So Thank yes. you so much. And before we uh, end here today, I'd like to give a list of resources that if you've experienced sexual abuse or trafficking or anything like that, you can contact some places here in Alaska. Uh, there's some organizations. There's Priceless. There's Alaska Native Justice Center. There's Alaska Center for Domestic Violence. You could contact my house here where we are at. And if you want to buy the book, which I really encourage everyone to read this important book to help you find your voice in your journey, you can go to maryhavens.com or there we will put the link on this podcast to go to Amazon. And you can buy the book there. So thank you guys so much. If you or someone you know are a victim of sex trafficking, please call 1-866-733-7878. Or text HELP to 233-733. For local services here at my house, you can call 373-HELP. That's 373-HELP. Remember, if you see something, say something. This is Redemption, Loved and Thriving. Until next time.